It's the latest edition of Shadow Talk, your weekly cybersecurity and digital risk podcast. Today, we cover the Hidden Cobra Fast Cash campaign alert issued by the US authorities, detailing ATM cash out campaigns performed by North Korean actors. We also look over the Five Eyes joint report into publicly available hacking tools. If you've never heard of China Chopper, Mimikatz, or PowerShell, then I recommend you stick with us for a lowdown. And finally, are companies who use MSPs at greater risk of attack? We bring in DSC, so Rick Holland to debate the issue with the wider team. All this today on Shadow Talk. So it's been a busy couple of weeks, and we've assembled our big hitters to provide their analysis of some of the big reports that have made the news. As always, we have Dr. Richard Gold, Director of Security Engineering. We've got Simon Hall, Senior Security Engineer. And seeing as we had him in London this week, it's another appearance from Rick Holland, CISO here at Digital Shadows. How are we all? Pretty good, thanks. Oh, good here, thank you. Good to go. Cool. So let's crack on. So the first story is this fast cash hidden Cobra alert. So at the beginning of October, the US uh, issued a joint technical alert from work done by the Department of Homeland Security, the US Treasury, and the FBI, as well as some government partners, identifying malware used by North Korean threat actors in an ATM cash out scheme, which they referred to as fast cash. Now, the alert claimed that the activity was performed by the North Korean government or their agents, and they referred to the activity as the Hidden Cobra Group. So what are some of the most significant tactics being used in the fast cash scheme? Well, I think the first thing which struck me is that the North Korean government is acting like a financial criminal group, knocking over banks, financial institutions, left, right and centre. So that's kind of a bit of a sci-fi aspect to this. It's a a great way to get around sanctions. It's a great way. Well, that's sweet cryptocurrency and, you know, fraudulent payments. So what they did, what in the, as the alert describes, is that they compromised some of the payment switch servers and used that to redirect messages which uh, were handling the transactions. And they used that to block any kind of... um, attempt by the by the payment system to reject its transactions so they were able to allow basically their fraudulent transactions to go through un, um, unaffected and it was based as well on they were hacking like AIX which is like the old IBM Unix yeah, yeah. you remember that from the, the good old bad old days yeah I'm old if I know AIX and have may have may or may not have worked that in my career um, yeah you're old it's you know it's 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 a legacy system. I think it's fair to say, and um, it's yeah, it, it's interesting that the how they got there is not clear. I think that's something which is missing from the from the alert. Probably they fished their way in, moved laterally, and then and found their way to, to to the juicy stuff. But for me, what's remarkable is that they were very happy to go after a you know an old legacy Unix. So that security by obscurity clearly is not working for these guys. Yeah, I mean, for me, that kind of screamed opportunistic, um, that they were looking for the the unsupported, unpatched systems. Yeah, I mean, the lateral movement was briefly mentioned at one point, but they, they don't really go into detail on how that occurred. But they were saying they were inside for what, about up to 155 days, which is plenty of time to to sit and monitor someone's movements and grab 
jump box credentials or whatever else to move your your way through. So yeah, I mean, it's most likely a, a phishing inside and then just wait for the right opportunity to move. Yeah, yeah, and they, the, the alert also calls out this you know, ISO standard, this ISO uh, 8583 standard for financial transaction messaging and how they act as new, a lot of detail about the standard. And they use that to, um, to subvert the libraries and the, the alerts they seem to. We see this a lot with all of the, the banking attacks though. Um, yeah. yeah, the Russians or the Chinese or whoever, you know, they, they all seem to have some inside knowledge or background in this, how these systems work. Yeah, exactly, Simon. So it's something we discussed, I think, last time we talked about Fin7. They seem to have a very detailed understanding of what are sometimes quite esoteric yeah, and they, it was also systems and processes. The, the Carbonac or not Carbonac, yeah. whatever, the bootstrap, the, the, the source code leak, you know, inside of that, there were these documents describing the entire, like, fraudulent, um, how the fraud detection stuff worked. And here, you know, they said that they, they knew how the libraries, which interpret financial request messages, and they were to, to properly construct fraudulent financial response messages. And they really are into the details of the business yeah. processes. I think that's what's interesting with these actors for me. It's not just, oh, they can fish, oh, they can run mini cats. Who should be worried about this then? So the alert said that they had not confirmed any fast cash incidents affecting US institutions. Is this only directed at FS? Is it, is it broader than that? The alert just talks about banks in Africa and Asia and says, yeah, they haven't observed this particular TTP happening in the US. I think that if you're running legacy AIX, well, that's a concern in itself. But the, I'm sure it's very stable. Uh, <laughs> yeah. the, the, that's, what they, that's what these people are targeting. So that's, that's a, obviously a concern. But in general, I think the, the broader point is that these financially motivated threat actors are getting to know your business processes. And if there are weaknesses there, they're going to find it. Yeah, definitely. I, and I think those standards are obviously different between different countries for, for financial systems. So in the US, it's probably a lot harder to find a an unsupported public-facing server or one that's easier accessible from a, from a jump box. And what are some of the solutions here? Um, is there anything specific that deviates from some of the traditional advice we hear? <laughs> and unsupported systems are a big no-no. Isolate, segregate. Yeah, it's probably a lot of segregate because I don't know about this particular application in this particular enterprise, but many organizations have legacy apps that they cannot get rid of. At one point in my career, I worked in a university and we did research and we had devices at that time that ran NT4 and there was nothing that we could do. And this is well past the days of NT4 being out there. Uh, so, so really we are encumbered by legacy systems um, and yeah. trying to set up visibility in and out of those environments with other tools. Just understanding that footprint in your environment where you have those legacy systems is, is so critical. Um, and, and you'll see these large digital transformation projects where, where people are trying to replace a legacy system and move to something that's in a service provider environment, which we're gonna to touch on in a, in a little bit as well. There's a lot of challenges associated with that. So, but really, got to have some additional controls in place when you have these systems that are 20 years old, 30. It's kind of interesting. You almost have the problem that the uh, ICS uh, companies have, except it's a financial uh, platform, uh, but it's been in the environment for about the same time uh, of those platforms. Yeah, it's like the upgrade cycle is pretty much the same, actually, as an right. ICS system. 
I think you mentioned, I mean, some of my favorite points that you've got to know your environment. You've got to know what you have. You've got to find out if you have this stuff. Maybe you have it, you don't even know about it. You know, who knows? But there's, there's getting to know the environment and then the monitoring. So if you can't, you know, as you say, in many cases, you can't get rid of something. You know, it's a business critical process. There is no other replacement. You're stuck with it. Then you just got to monitor the hell out of that environment and make sure that anything that's coming in, you something you know about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with the legacy stuff, like from my pen testing background, I see this everywhere. But it is down to how you you handle that risk and the kind of segregation and the access controls around it. So if you're doing that, then fine. Everyone expects that, especially older organisations. They're going to have legacy equipment, but there are ways of maintaining that and making it secure. Thank you for that, guys. Moving on, um, Rick just mentioned it a second ago. We're going to talk about managed service providers. And the reason for that is there's a story of ongoing APT, advanced persistent threat activity, where attackers are trying to infiltrate networks of global managed service providers. Now, when I read this, I thought, is this really a surprise? An MSP seems to be a pretty attractive target for an attacker. And I want to open this up, keep it more like a debate style. Question here is, does this mean that using MSPs actually makes organizations somewhat more at risk? Well, that's a really nice uh, leading question. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely something which is not set. Right? It's not like there is a black and white, you know, this is right, this is wrong answer. It, you know, it's case by case. Uh, you know, who is the MSP? Is it somebody who, you know, that's, that's very trustworthy? You know, there's all you know, MSPs like any companies there exist on, on a spectrum and some of them are you know more secure and some of them are unfortunately less secure but just as before we maybe talk about that we could just touch on the fact that they were doing you know, the, the APT groups were doing the you know the usual stuff right they were they had they stole credentials they got hold of privileged accounts and then they used either built-in tools to um, you know pull data out of the system, or they use you know, the standard pen test tools, PowerSploit and, and others to, um, to, get the, to get, the, get the job done. So they may be, you know, the targets is an interesting discussion. The tradecraft is pretty, pretty, pretty standard stuff. But yeah, I, you know, you, if you put, the saying is, you know, don't put all your eggs in one basket, but you know, you can put all your eggs in one basket and then watch that basket. I was saying earlier, it's a bit similar to the argument of password managers. You put all your passwords in one place, are you then increasing the attack service? You have everything there. If someone gets access to that, then yeah, potentially very dangerous. But then yeah. you have very good password managers, you have ones which are a bit less reputable, all depends. And that shouldn't mean that you then start basically acting unsafely online as well. You still got to... Yeah, and that's the thing we touched on, right? That you, it doesn't mean that you abdicate responsibility exactly. just because you're using an MSP. Yeah, I mean, any third party you use, you're given, you're running the risk of adding a larger attack surface. Um, MSPs in general, yes, you're giving them a lot more control. So you've got to do your vetting, you've got to do your third party reviews to make sure that they're following the best practices because they're not always doing that. Well, you've got to do your little checkbox, tick box surveys for your service providers. Uh, an area of great fun for me um, internally here at Digital Shadows. I, I, think, I think the majority of organizations are going to be in a better position with a well-vetted managed service provider than they could be otherwise. An example, uh, and it's not a managed service provider, but it's called a service provider. If you think about Office 365, 
Um, I, I think that Microsoft is going to do a far better job of email security than you could with an Exchange server online or a little post-fix box running in a closet. Now, of course, it's not, it's not quite that contrast. You, know, you still have large companies, but you're running the service in the cloud. You're going to get the business continuity, disaster recovery benefits. But of course, we, as we have seen, and, and actually Office 365 is a good thing to mention, three, four weeks ago, we saw some outages there in, in, in Azure as well. So you know, I think from my perspective as a CISO, you get a lot of uh, benefit from going to a service provider, but you do have to vet them and, and probably importantly, not set an expectation that because you went with someone that it's gonna solve all your problems, that you're gonna have um, you know, service that never goes down. You're still gonna have challenges, but I think the service providers are, are gonna be more resilient than you could be um, on your own. So Rick, on that, because you're using your CISO hat, what is it you're looking for when you're selecting a, a managed service provider? What, what are some of the things that you are evaluating and considering? Because we said if it is a spectrum for listeners, they're contemplating employing one or what is it they should be looking for? Well, I always recommend, and I would see this at Forrester as I worked with the uh, MSSPs with response to incident response and threat intelligence, I would always go to my peer group and even now on any decision that I make, I like to talk to other CISOs of technology companies, cybersecurity companies and see what they're using for whatever it is, infrastructure as a service, SaaS, managed service provider. So, you know, the peer group for me of someone that's like me or like us is an area that I like to go. Of course, you do the things that you have to do. Do they have a SOC 2, ISO certification, those sorts of things. Now, one of the things I will do with Digital Shadows, uh, the whole eat your own dog food, you know, we use Searchlight here as customers. Um, and we have a lot of collection on third parties. So I can go out and look in our password database as an example, kind of get a, it doesn't mean that it's 100% guarantee that they're gonna be good or bad, but I can see. It's an indication. It, it can use as a data point. When it, and Simon actually helps us out on our third party risk assessments. You can look at our credential store and see how much does this SaaS provider have. I actually am more concerned about a SaaS provider as a small company than I am about a large managed security services provider, right? To me, I'm, I'm more worried about the SaaS providers and I wanna evaluate what kind of data do they have. I like to call all data toxic data uh, because it's, it's dangerous to us. Um, you know, we wanna have program in place where we expire our data, we don't keep data forever. Um, and all of this is a journey for us. I'm not saying that we're the perfect security company like everyone else, it's a work in progress. Um, but I personally am very, very concerned about the 100 person or less SaaS company and the type of data that they may have from intellectual property to personally identifiable data to health data to GDPR data. Um, you always want to have that, that, that assessment and understand the risk that you put with the service provider. Yeah, as you say, you kind of have unrealistic expectations. So what are you going to do when there's an outage? So you need to have that plan if you're hosting a service yourself. And even if you're using uh, a managed service provider, you still have to have that plan in place. And you still have to you know, consider that. Because we've seen even Amazon has had outages that were quite significant. And of course, you don't expect them to happen often, but you still need to have some kind of contingency in place when that, does, event, that event does happen. Even Slack goes offline. And when Slack goes offline, I mean, I actually have to turn around, look one foot away from me and speak to someone. It's, it's a nightmare. So sometimes I don't. I just hold it because the Slack will be back in about 30 minutes. So I just wait for all verbal comms until uh, I can go back to Slack. Or Twitter. 
I DM. I switched to DMs. <laughs> That's what signals for, though, isn't it? <laughs> right. Uh, great. Moving on to our final story of the week. So the topic here is a joint report by Five Eyes. So that's the intelligence agencies of the United States, United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And their report highlights the use of five publicly available tools which they've observed in recent cyber incidents around the world. And this report also contains advice on how to detect and limit their activity on your network. So Rich, you really like this report. What was it specifically that what I yeah, what I really liked about this report was that it talks about the sort of things that most organizations have to be concerned with. These are publicly available tools. Some of them are open source tools like Mimikatz, PowerShell Empire, that you know you, you you sometimes we get too carried away by you know the attribution, the nation states, the O-Day, and this kind of stuff, and we forget that there are the fundamentals we have to have in place. And this is what threat actors are using. So, you know, it's like the, you have to be this high sign on the roller coaster, right? You know, you've got to be protecting against these publicly available tools. And they're all, you know, pretty well known, but organizations consistently fail to defend against them for a variety of reasons. But, you know, they, in the report, they break down you know, what the tool does, so it's, they talk about remote access trojan, web shell, conventional sealer, lateral movement, C2, and how the tools work, what they do, how you can detect and protect against them, and examples of their usage. One of them that um, particularly uh, struck me was um, they talk about uh, February 2018, UK energy sector company was compromised, and these um, factor was using PowerShell Empire, and uh, you know the weak credentials. One of the admin accounts is how they got in initially, and then they were using like a standard open source toolkit that you know we've used in our tests that you know I've written code for. That you know it's it's nothing special in that sense. It's not about your own work. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I generally agree. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's it's not. You know, you, you don't have to. You just go to the GitHub page and get clone it and, and use it. You know, I I think this we've touched on this before. You know, they'll use whatever works for the situation. They're not going to customize or you know create their own tools for everything. Uh, when you've got Mimikatz and Empire and PowerSploit out there, you know, they'll do pretty much everything for you. Yeah, and uh, have to also you know was very very impressed to see that uh, Digital Shadows blog on PowerShell security practices was cited in the Five Eyes report as a good summary. So, you know, that was pretty pretty nice touch. Yeah, and we'll put a link to that PowerShell blog. It's a really good overview of what PowerShell is, breaks it down really nicely, really digestible. We'll put a link to that in the description of the podcast today. And it's just another reminder to check out our resources page on our website where you can find all the different content and blogs and the latest research papers from our team. One thing, if uh, I'm putting the CISO hat back on, I don't know what hat I'm taking off when I do that, but um, one thing that I think could be useful um, if you're trying to justify spend as a security leader, you know, this is a nice rundown on tools. You can take the, in the US, you can take the US CERT alert on this as well and use it to help justify an endpoint detection and response tool. Like these are the tools that are out there. Um, that, that are using normal things that look like normal system administration activities. 
use that to help justify it. I'm always looking for Verizon DBIR, you know, US CERT alerts, CERT alert, alerts like this one that was obviously much broader than the US CERT as a third party that I could use to help validate my strategy. And right now it's probably an opportune time for those out there um, in, in internet land. We're, we're doing, I'm in London right now for 2019 planning and all of our teams were doing 2019 planning. Last week, Rich was in Dallas and we were doing right. internal security research planning. Um, so this could be a nice little report to use to maybe point to as third-party validation of a strategy that you, you, you're looking towards and you want to have something that could support your proposal to your CFO um, yeah. uh, on it. And it's very pragmatic. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. It's like, these are the things that we see very frequently. These are, you know, these are very, very common tools. They're very widely available. So you're not sort of like boxing yourself into a corner by trying to address the concerns which you know, these tools throw up. So they are, you know, things that everybody has to worry about, like you know, dealing with the web shell, making sure that you know, people can't just upload random code onto your your web servers and things like this. It's you know, it's really pragmatic and you know it's really concrete. And I think that's let's let's get this stuff sorted first before we worry about you know attackers using AI to. <laughs> that could be a new tagline. Attackers using AI for I don't know whatever. On that grand note, <laughs> it's time to probably wrap up this episode of the podcast. So um, we'll just go around the table here and get a few takeaways. From we've discussed a lot of things. So if each of you could just give me one specific point of what we discussed or something that's on your mind that you want our listeners to take away, Rick, can you kick us off? Third-party risk, I think. I actually think we should do a, po a podcast episode and just dig into third-party risk because I could go down this, um, uh, this, this, this rabbit hole uh, quite a bit. So I don't know. My takeaway is we need to have a deeper conversation on third-party risk and, 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 and look for ways to do it better. Rich, what about you? Yeah, so for me, I think everything just comes back around again, right? It's all about the fundamentals. If you look at the, these three different stories that we've talked about, at the end of the day, it still comes back to doing the basics, getting the fundamentals in place. You know, it's the isolation, it's patching, it's credential hygiene, and it, which are difficult things to do. You know, I don't want to, you know, trivialize it, but again, you know, that's, you've got to focus on getting the fundamentals in place. And I think all three of these stories really illustrate that. Yeah, I think for, for me around the, the kind of the common tooling that's used, um, just following the mitigations that, for instance, in this particular report gave uh, are not going to only protect you against those tools, but they're also going to protect you against tools that do the same techniques, which is the, the most of them, really. So all tooling, even custom tooling, are generally going to follow standard techniques. So following mitigation for a particular product will cover you for a majority of them as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I fully agree with that. Yeah, if you're protecting, you know, if you follow the mitigation advice for like dealing with lateral movement that Empire does is going to help you against, you know, the commercial stuff like Cobalt Strike and you know, exactly toolkits that are out there. So follow best practices. Thank you very much for that, Simon. Okay, great. So that's the end of our podcast. If you've enjoyed the discussion, if you take issue with anything that we've said or you want to join in, you can always reach us at our Twitter account, which is at Digital Shadows. And thank you for listening. See you next week. <laughs>